You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't forget to subscribe to our daily email news brief, where you'll find dozens of links to all the day's cybersecurity news. You can subscribe at thecyberwire.com. New Satori variants are out. Turkish hacktivists use Twitter for social engineering. Parties unknown are conducting an espionage campaign against Turkish defense contractors. North Korea's Lazarus Group improves its cryptocurrency theft tradecraft. Dating app vulnerabilities are a cyber stalker's dream date. Britain will combat disinformation with a national office of rumor control. And say fooey to pirated copies of Fire and Fury. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 24, 2018. New Satori variants are said to be out with fresh botnets. Researchers at New Sky Security have been poking around in the dark web and believe they've determined the same malefactor who recently pushed the Satori variant Mirai Okiru is the same actor responsible for two newly discovered Mirai variants, Masuta and Pure Masuta. The hacker's nom de net is Nexus Zeta, and when investigators first became aware of his or her activities, they were inclined to regard him or her as a novice. Too many OPSEC missteps in the code, for one thing. But Nexus Zeta seems to have upped their game. Pure Masuta, in particular, is thought to be interesting. It exploits a simple object access protocol, or SOAP, feature that exists as an injection bug first noticed on D-Link systems. SOAP is used by administrators to manage network devices. Researchers at security firm McAfee describe an assault on certain high-profile Twitter accounts that's been claimed by Turkish pro-government hacktivist group Ayildiz Tim. The attacker compromised accounts belonging to influential persons at the World Economic Forum, the UN, and Fox News to send the compromised accounts' contacts direct messages that either suggested support for Pakistani and Turkish causes or fished for account credentials. Using compromised email accounts to send messages whose recipients are likely to accept and act upon is a familiar social engineering ploy. It's seen, for example, in business email compromise scams. This particular campaign uses Twitter direct messages in a similar way. Security firm RiskIQ reports another phishing campaign, but in this case Turkish enterprises are the victims. An unidentified espionage operator has been prospecting Turkish defense contractors with malicious email attachments that carry the Remcos remote access Trojan, the Remcos RAT. Remcos performs a typical array of spyware functions, keylogging, screenshot capture, audio and video recording, as well as common RAT functionality that permits it to manage files and programs. One unusual capability is its ability to set up SOX5 proxies, which lets the attack's controllers turn their victims into network proxies, thereby hiding their real command and control server. Pyongyang is staying busy. Trend Micro reports that the Lazarus Group has evolved toward the use of PowerShell scripts in its ongoing cryptocurrency theft campaign. There's been no obvious let-up in North Korean attempts against cryptocurrencies. South Korean targets of altcoin heists may be getting a bit harder. The South Korean government is considering regulations that would limit cryptocurrency trading to the more stable, better-regulated environment of the banking system. 
and Metrolinx, an Ontario transit company, disclosed that it was hit by a North Korean cyber attack. The organization says the attack was routed through Russia and that neither customer privacy nor safety were compromised, but beyond that they cite security and decline to provide further information. An obvious bit of speculation would be that the incident involved WannaCry, and media accounts of Metrolinx's disclosure have tended to mention the U.S. CIA's recent attribution of that particular strand of malware to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, but Metrolinx is unwilling to go even that far in its public comments. Flashpoint recently released their 2017 end-of-year update to their Business Risk Intelligence Decision Report, It provides an overview of evolving geopolitical issues, evaluates the cybercriminal ecosystem, and measures cyber and physical threats. John Condra is the director of Asia-Pacific Research at Flashpoint, and he joins us to review the report. One of the things that we do differently in this report as well is we, we have a section that we call Flashpoints. Um, you know, it's somewhat, somewhat cutesy given the name of the company. Um, but but these, aren't, these aren't intended to be predictions per se. Um, these are intended to be things to look out for in the global geopolitical threatscape or landscape in particular uh, that may cause a shift in whatever direction in the cyber threat environment for our client base as well as just more broadly. And so we have things in here like, you know, say the North Korea conundrum. If obviously if, if a kinetic conflict breaks out on the, on the Korean Peninsula, that is probably going to change the risk posture for many of our clients as well as just as everyday users on the Internet. Is there anything in the report that uh, was particularly surprising or unexpected? One thing that, at least from since I cover uh, Asia Pacific, one thing that, that we throughout the year I was kind of surprised about was the pivot um, ostensibly by North Korean threat actors to target financial institutions and, and even uh, in the case of WannaCry, leverage ransomware. Um, both of those behaviors are not generally associated with nation state actors, at least up to this point. If you think about it, it doesn't makes a lot of sense. Nation states generally don't have uh, those types of funding requirements. Um, you know, the money you're going to make from ransomware is not nearly what a government would require to say, buy things like tanks and planes. But in North Korea's case, they're somewhat of a unique one since they're so isolated. They're, they're, being, uh, you know, they're being hammered by sanctions right now. They're trying to find alternative ways to fund their regime. So turning towards uh, tactics that we would generally associate with cyber criminal groups, it's a really interesting turn in North Korea's behavior. Um, and that's something that obviously now North Korea is more of a threat to uh, entities that traditionally would not consider them a threat. So that was one surprise for us. One of the other ones that I personally found interesting was kind of the rapidity with which the deep and dark web marketplace environment, uh, kind of in more traditional cybercrime, fell away or kind of collapsed uh, in 2017. And this is a variety of factors that go into this, um, but fundamentally four top-tier marketplaces went down in 2017. Um, we're thinking of things like Alphabay, uh, which is kind of the spiritual successor to the Silk Road. It was taken down by law enforcement in the latter half of the year. Uh, and then Hansa market went down not long after, um, and it turned out that those two cases were related um, and were both the result of law enforcement action, as well as two other marketplaces, Evolution and Agora, both went down for different reasons, security concerns, plus potentially an exit scam. And so that, that really caused a lot of chaos in, in a very fast-moving, paranoid uh, community who was very much concerned about personal safety, uh, very much concerned about anonymity online. And what we've been seeing is a transition away from traditional services for communication or transactions moving towards alternative ones that are emerging. Things like Discord, which 
is a popular chat and, and, and video app or chat and voice app primarily used in the gaming community, as well as decentralized marketplaces that can't easily be taken down. When you look at the uh, the threats that are on the horizon here, the things that have shown up in this report, what sorts of recommendations do you have for people in terms of uh, focusing their efforts and their resources? Yeah, I, in general, as, as intelligence professionals, you know, one of the things that intelligence professionals do is, is in general try to avoid making such uh, broad recommendations because they're generally not applicable. Mm. Um, and it's generally not our expertise, nor is it our place to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say one way that you could use this report is, you know, say you're in the healthcare industry, go look at uh, the chart on page five or whatever it is in the report and say, okay, the two the two entities that are known to target healthcare in any you know regular fashion are would be China and cybercrime. Um, and then you can start to think about how how do you mitigate both of those threats, which are very fundamentally very different threats in terms of you know the the scale with which they target, the frequency with which they do so, the tools that they use. You can you can start asking the your internal team as well as whatever uh, threat intelligence providers and vendors you use. Um, more targeted questions about that, uh, rather than just thinking, you know, I, I have to defend against everything. I have, to, I have to defend against the panoply of threats. But in reality, you know, jihadi hackers don't really go after healthcare uh, entities. So why bother in that sense? You know, it's not to say that it can't happen. It's not to say that it doesn't happen sometimes. But it is to say that you can use this type of information to help tailor your own strategies internally. That's John Condra from Flashpoint. You can review the complete report on their website. Amid dark warnings of the United Kingdom's vulnerability to massive infrastructure hacking, Her Majesty's government is also seeking to address the problem of hostile nations' influence operations. The government intends to form a new organization whose mission will be to combat disinformation. Britain's new National Security Communications Unit will operate from the Cabinet Office. Researchers at Checkmarks have taken a look at the widely used dating app Tinder, and they don't particularly like what they see. The app doesn't encrypt photos, for one thing, and it also leaves swipes and matches open to inspection. This would be good news for stalkers, but bad news for ordinary lonely hearts looking for whatever it is they're looking for. Checkmarks warns that it's able to simulate exactly what the user sees on his or her screen. You know everything. Everything includes what Tinder users are doing, what their intimate preferences might be, stuff like that, stuff that attracts voyeurs, stalkers, and blackmailers. Here's another reason to get your stuff from actual legitimate stores as opposed to from torrents of pirates and so forth. Fire and Fury, the sketchily sourced but by most accounts lurid and hugely entertaining tell-all by a journalist who somehow received access to the Trump White House, is circulating in a pirated PDF form that contains, of course, malware. The PDF contains a Windows executable that quietly installs a backdoor in the reader's device. The bad version is being circulated mostly through social media channels. There was a downloadable edition in a Google Drive, WikiLeaks tweeted a link out, but that drive has been taken down because of a violation of Google's terms of service. HackReads cautiously says, Experts believe that it is difficult to assess whether the pirated edition is safe or unsafe. We think we'll go with unsafe. The sort of silvery lining is that the malware, discovered, by the way, by a researcher at Kaspersky Lab, which adds a certain flavor to the story, seems readily detectable by most antivirus products. But don't download it. Buy it from Amazon or Apple instead if you're interested. I mean, come on. Spend a buck. Won't kill you. 
Badness does creep into the walled garden of big stores from time to time, but less often than it disports itself in the digital equivalent of the car trunk of some guy selling knockoff NBA jerseys on a side street. Besides, the pirated version is said to be about 230 pages long. The original runs 328 pages and is therefore 98 pages better. You get what you pay for, my friend. How do you know those 98 pages weren't where all the good stuff was? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, there is uh, no secret that we have a cyber skills shortage. And uh, you wanted to go through some of the ways that uh, perhaps people can address that. Yeah, I think that, like you said, we have a a very large uh, cyber skill shortage ahead of us. And uh, we as an industry need to do a lot better at bringing in diversity into the workforce. So number one, I think first and foremost, there needs to be a cultural shift and a a mindset shift around uh, women and technology. And working at Accenture, we have a very big commitment to diversity and we participate in a lot of forums and being able to draw in more women into the workforce and and really specifically, and actually from my perspective, very selfishly more into cybersecurity. And I think that one way to do that is to promote, of course, the science and technology and the mathematics and engineering and all that in the younger generation. So number one is bringing in diversity. And number two would also be getting into earlier um, processes in in school. So perhaps it's not just high school anymore, perhaps it's middle school. And then perhaps even in elementary teaching the basics and the fundamentals around uh, uh, computer programming. You know, one of the things I've heard uh, many times with people I've spoken to is that you know, even when we get uh, women into the field, we have a hard time keeping them, that retaining them 
is a real problem. Yeah, I think uh, I do acknowledge that the retention around that may be problematic in in some organizations. I think that speaking as a male, uh, <laughs> meaning I uh, could be part of the problem, uh, I, I would also see that part of the cultural shift needs to be in being more accepting of diversity and being more accepting of people who want to excel in their field. I do think that technology and cybersecurity, there are some less than favorable behaviors and and voices that are made. And I think that it's up to us as professionals to A, not stand for it, and B, educate others in this field to prevent that from happening. So those of us who are advocating for uh, the increased diversity, uh, we need to uh, stand up and have our voices heard. Exactly. All right. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.